Good morning. I am glad to be with you. It's an honor to be with you this morning, preaching God's word to us from Exodus 24. Uh, we're continuing. My name is Paul Ramsey, uh, like Taylor said. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'm glad to see you. Uh, maybe we'll shake hands at the end of the gathering. Um, if you're new here, just want to re- repeat what Taylor said. We're so glad that you're here. Um, this is a safe space for you, no matter if you've been uh, a Christian for your entire life or you would consider yourself as like the least likely person to ever become a Christian, um, this is a safe space for you. We're glad that you're here. We invite you to journey with us as we together explore the claims of the Bible and of God through his word uh, for us. So we're glad that you're here. This morning we are continuing uh, what has been uh, a somewhat long series through the book of Exodus. We've been doing an extended walk through the the pivotal salvation event of the Old Testament where God rescues his people from Israel uh, and, and makes them into his covenant people and gives them the way that they are to live as a people in whose midst God dwells. Um, and, and so we've been walking through this series. We've passed the halfway point. Um, we're, we're kind of on the downhill back end of the book of Exodus. Uh, thematically speaking, there's still a lot of chapters left to come. Uh, but this morning we are at a very critical passage. This is the ratification of the Mosaic covenant. Um, this is where Moses, when, when Jesus gave the Lord's supper to his disciples and he said, take this, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He is in a, in a sense quoting and modifying um, the words that Moses says in the middle of this passage. He says, this is the blood of the covenant right before he sprinkles it on the people. And so this is the moment at which God looks at his people and seals a covenant in blood with them, says, you are my people, I am your God. We're gonna do this together. And so this, I'm excited to, to dig into what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, would you, can, I, can I pray one more time though, as, as we jump in? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for each other. Thank you for this space. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. I ask for your guidance, uh, for your protection for me and for all those sitting here. Um, Holy Spirit, I also ask for your power and your clarity uh, for me as I deliver your word, seek to deliver your word feeling uh, uh, somewhat more inefficient, uh, insufficient than usual this morning. But I know that you're enough and I'm so thankful for that. And so uh, we come before your throne and ask that you would meet us in this space as you promised to and as you do each week when we gather in your name. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in the movie Frozen, uh, there's a character named Olaf. Uh, I, I should... Give so my I have two daughters, a three year old and a one year old, um, and our three year old has been sick more often than not over the past really month and a half or two. And this past week, she went to the doctor. She had another ear infection in the middle of the week. Um, uh, and but one of the things of her being sick uh, so frequently is that we have gotten the chance to watch a lot of. Uh, movies with her. Uh, and one of the movies that we've watched probably a dozen times in the past week is Frozen, uh, which is a great movie. Um, and there's this character in Frozen named Olaf. You remember who Olaf is? He's the snowman. Uh, uh, he's a magically created snowman by the main character, uh, Elsa, 
who's got this magical power to create winter. That's where the movie, froze, the name comes from, Frozen. She accidentally freezes over the whole world. And um, she creates Olaf. And there's this, almost as soon as you meet Olaf, there's something strange about him. He's funny, he's laughing, but he starts to dream about summertime. He's a snowman created in the winter. And he is just absolutely convinced I was made for the summertime. I cannot wait for the summertime. I can't wait to see what happens when solid water meets heat. Uh, and he just kind of goes on and on. He sings this song about how awesome it's gonna be when he reaches uh, summertime and the two characters who are with him while he's talking about this, Anna and Kristoff, are like whispering to each other like, he really has no idea, does he? He's, he's a snowman, he can't live in the summer. We should tell him, no, we shouldn't tell him, we shouldn't ruin it, he's so happy. Um, but then, so right as they're saying that, one of the funniest lines in the movie Frozen, I think, is when Olaf is singing this song, and he says, <laughs> I'm gonna butcher this, but he says, uh, winter's a good time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. <laughs> And he's, like, he's looking at a, he's like dancing around singing and put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. And he just goes past this puddle. Um, and it's, I'm of course butchering it, but of course puddle rhymes with cuddle. Um, and the reason I bring Olaf up is this. Olaf, a snowman who has had never had any experience with heat uh, or with summertime, finds himself daydreaming about it. He's convinced that he was created for summertime even though he's never been there. And the reason I'm telling you about that is because I think the creators of Frozen wrote into the character for Olaf uh, something that thinkers throughout human history have seen, uh, uh, have observed, have attempted to draw conclusions about in in the very fabric, the depth of the heart of, of all of humanity. It's this, that deep down, human beings know that things are not as they should be. The world is broken. It's in need of fixing. We all have dreams of what the world should look like, even though we have no idea what that would even look like by experience. We have no experience of it. And it's not just the world out there, but it's our interior world. We know that in ourselves, there's this wholeness uh, that we thirst for that we don't have. And we know that it's there and it's there for us to pursue. Uh, And so we search for it. The history of humanity is a history of time and time again, men, women, children seeking to find fulfillment and meaning in just about everything. We've tried everything. We've tried power, prestige, uh, pleasure, philosophy, money, possessions, you name it, it's been tried to try to find this wholeness that we know exists, that we know we've been created for. And time and again, this wholeness proves to be elusive. Sometimes we find satisfaction for many of our desires, but that satisfaction is only ever proves to be temporary. Uh, in fleeting, nothing the world uh, seems to be able to offer is able to slake our thirst, to quench our thirst for what we know life ought to be for us and for the world. We cope with this enduring longing in a variety of ways. Sometimes we explain it away. Sometimes we, we are optimistic about it. Sometimes we're absolutely despairing about it. But regardless of how we deal with it, Um, the overwhelming witness of thinkers throughout human history is that this is true of all human beings. At the root of the human experience is this longing for something that we don't have yet. Some life that we don't have yet, some place that we haven't been yet. We are all little Olafs dreaming about what life is gonna be like in summer whenever we get there. As Christians, of course, we have a shared understanding of what it is that we are all ultimately searching for. 
Many of you have probably heard this quote before, uh, or at least part of it, from C.S. Lewis, uh, who's a Christian thinker and writer from the, the, from, about the, from the last century. He said this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's a profound thought that C.S. Lewis has. In other words, since this world has proven to be insufficient in meeting the desires and the thirst that we know that we have, um, the most probable explanation for that is that there must be another world for which we were made. Another Christian thinker, the church father Augustine, uh, wrote another quote that you may have probably heard before. About 1,500 years ago, he wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. Often that said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Augustine refers to the longing that is within every human heart for fulfillment. He refers to that as restlessness that will remain the state of our hearts until they find the only place that can give them true rest, God's presence in God himself. Indeed, the Bible gives us a clear picture of this longing and where it comes from. Uh, from far from being a figment of our optimistic imaginations, right? this heaven on earth utopia that you and I dream about actually existed once. It existed at the very beginning. When God created all things, he created mankind in his image, uh, gloriously fashioned after his likeness and placed in this resplendent garden, the Garden of Eden, a place of perfect peace, a place of perfect rest, a place of perfect fellowship with God and with each other. But then when the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, they were cast out of the garden and as a result, they no longer were able to enjoy the perfect peace, the perfect rest, the perfect fellowship with God and with each other. And from that point forward, all humanity has shared in the experience of Adam and Eve, this estrangement from God, far from his promised peace and rest, far from perfect relationship, from shalom, from this wholeness that we know, we know we were created for. And yet God, in that earliest moment when Adam and Eve rebelled against him, God was not done with his people. He didn't just wipe the slate clean. He didn't just decide, you know what? That was, that was a good try. I'm gonna get rid of him. No, his plan for humanity continued. And it continues even to this day. From the very beginning, God had determined and had disclosed. He, he told Adam and Eve that he would one day, it was in veiled fashion, but he told them. He, said, he, he told them that he would one day make a way for everything that is wrong to be made right. And so all of, humility, all of humanity, ever since then, imbued with this image of God, this, this desire for the Garden of Eden, uh, has been wandering the earth, yearning for a return to that garden. And so when we come to the book of Exodus, we join in with this wandering people who found themselves in slavery in Egypt. They cried out to God. God then works powerfully on their behalf, as we've seen in previous weeks in this series. God performs these amazing miracles. He brings them out of Egypt. He feeds them miraculously in the wilderness as they follow him until he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And when they get there, right, Moses, who's familiar with that place because it is where God had spoken to him back in the burning bush incident back at the beginning of Exodus, God addresses Moses and he tells Moses to tell the people that he brought them there to establish a covenant with them 
that they might obey his voice and keep his covenant, be his treasured possession among all peoples, that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the text that Justin preached for us last week. All of the Exodus narrative had been leading up to this point. Here are God's people. God's people who had been wandering, God's people who had suffered under the hand of slavery, who had been delivered and had been brought before God's presence. They've been told, God, they've been told, God said to Moses, Moses told the people, they've been sitting there and they're waiting and Moses says, hey, God has brought us here to make a covenant with us, to make us his people. And then, if you remember what happens last week, Justin spoke about this, God opened his mouth and he spoke to them in their hearing. And do you remember their reaction? Let me read chapter 20, verses eight and nine. Chapter 20, verse eight says this, excuse me, verses 18 and 19. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, after hearing God's voice, it says that the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. They said to Moses, you speak to us, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see, this is God's people who had been wandering, who had been waiting for God to extend relation to them, he br- relationship to them. He brings them before him, and then he speaks to them, and they are undone by his voice, the sound of his voice. In what becomes a pattern in the Bible for those who encounter the presence of God, rather than coming and drawing near to God with presence, or with, with confidence, they tremble, they stand far off, they are terrified of God's presence. You see, the moment God spoke to them, two things happened simultaneously. One, the moment God spoke, any doubts in answering the existential questions of life faded away into the background. When they heard God's, God's voice, they knew this is the God of the universe. This is the one who created all things. This is the one who alone is worthy of my praise, my worship, my devotion. The one in whose presence alone I will be able to find the peace and rest I've been waiting for because he is my creator. They knew that. But then simultaneously, as soon as they realized that, they realized in that moment their own unworthiness that they had no business being anywhere close to him. That it was dangerous because they were unworthy. You see, knowing that the presence of God is to be desired above all else is a familiar theme from here and from really the rest of the entire Old Testament. The Psalms are full of references to this glorious presence of God that his people thirst for. Psalm 23, the the beautiful psalm about God being the shepherd, uh, being David's shepherd, it ends with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 36 says, they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 26, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Last one, Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27. Throughout the Old Testament, the the counsel of scripture is that God's people 
thirst for, long for, desire above all else, God's presence. When they are reminded of who God is, they get, they, they get distracted often and they forget this reality. But when they are reminded again of who God is and they spend time in God's presence, they remember, I don't wanna go anywhere. I wanna be here forever. But that begs the question that also is a very familiar one throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 15 says this, says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The, the prophets, the universal counsel of the Old Testament prophets is there is none like you, O Lord. Moses says that in his song back in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, the, the, God speaks to the prophets, to his people and says, to whom would you liken me? No one. I am your God. God is holy. He's described as holy. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? See, God's people knew that that God's presence was what they thirsted for, was what they longed for. And they also knew that God's presence was dangerous. How could they possibly draw near to God? Who is it who can dwell with God in his holy place? Encountering God's presence, they were struck with that question that eventually became an anthem for God's people. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? And that brings us to our passage for today. See, they've been brought to the foot of the mountain of God. God has spoken directly to them and they are trembling. They are like a frozen snowman who has finally found out the heat that he has always dreamed about only to find out that he has begun to melt. He can't survive the heat that he has so longed for. Heat and snow are ultimately incompatible. God's fallen, unworthy people and God's presence are completely incompatible. They're wondering who can ascend, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his presence? How can we draw near? And that's the question that God answers for them. And so let's look at what happens. Look with me, if you would, at at chapter 24, verses one through 11. Rather than read the text, which Taylor already did, let me give you a quick summary of what happens. And I've got, do you see the slides there, Jordan? Are those slides in there? Okay, wonderful. I've, I've put a visual, uh, I've put these on a slide to, to, and, and you can just click through, Jordan, as I explain the different parts. Because I, I want us to see the organization of the text is very intentional in the way that it's presented to us. But here's a summary of what happens in this amazing event. Verses one through 11. First, God calls Moses and some key leaders and the 70 of the elders uh, of Israel up on the mountain. That's the first thing that happens. So he calls them up. The second thing that happens is that Moses tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and the people answer pledging their obedience to the covenant. That's the second thing. The third thing, there's five. The third thing is uh, verses four through six, the covenant is confirmed. And that happens in three main stages. First, Moses writes down the words of the covenant that he had just spoken to the people. The second thing is the the permanent relationship between God and Israel. Moses gives a symbol of that in building an altar and setting up 12 pillars to represent God's people. So so that's a symbol of the relationship, the in-person physical relationship between God and his people. And then third, the basis of the covenant is applied, a blood sacrifice. And then fourth, there's a full reading of the book of the covenant, which is understood to be all of the contents. The book of the covenant referred to in our our, our, uh, passage is chapters 20 through 23 of Exodus. The, the words and the statutes, the words and the laws, the 10 commandments and the rest of the laws. And the, this full reading is, happens again and then they again 
agree to this, the people answer in the affirmative, uh, pledging their obedience. And then finally, uh, Moses, Aaron, Nahab, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel go up to the mountain for the fellowship celebration of the initiation of the covenant. So as you can see, this narrative um, is structured intentionally. The structure itself is called a chiasm. You may have heard of that before. It's a kind of chiasm that begins and ends the same way. If you notice, Moses and the elders are called up. At the end, Moses and the elders go up. Um, And then it builds, moves inwards to zoom in on what is the heart uh, of the passage. And that for us is the blood covenant. And let me point out a few things for us um, in this passage. First, I think that the first thing, and I'll get to the structure uh, again in just a moment, but the first thing I think we see is how God is depicted for us. I've hinted at this already. To state the obvious, this is not a covenant between two equal parties. This is not a covenant between two equal parties. Many covenants at this time and ancient Near Eastern covenants were between a superior and an inferior, and this is absolutely one of those. It is a covenant that is willingly entered into by both parties, that's to be sure, but it is one that is graciously extended by God to his people, not vice versa. There's no, this is clearly God graciously coming to his people with a covenant and saying, here's what I have to offer for you. Throughout this whole section of Exodus, which extends from chapter 19 through 24, God is described as a holy, fiery, uh, consuming fire who is unapproachable in his majesty outside of his choice of who gets to draw near to him. So he is totally unapproachable. That's how he's described. But in chapter 19, God had descended from heaven to appear to his people at Mount Sinai. And here in chapter 24, we see him calling Israel up to himself. In this way, we see that God This is the God who created all things, the holy God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see that God is pleased to descend from heaven and meet with his people. And he does so very deliberately, gives very clear instructions to Moses and to the rest of the people so that they do not get consumed by his holiness. That's the first thing that I wanted to point out, to notice that, that, that considering how God is revealed to us in this story, the very fact that God is meeting with his people at all And all the while protecting them from his dangerous presence is an act of grace. This is a beautifully gracious covenant. God had planned for all time up until this point to establish relationship with his people and it would only ever be by his grace. And here we see God's grace. The fact that we are reading this story at all is a testament to the gracious love of God for his people. The second thing that I wanna point out is this. Notice who in this chapter, uh, who in this passage is the main actor? Who is the main actor in this covenant passage? While God speaks his word of invitation right at the beginning, the primary actor, it's interesting to see that the primary actor, the one doing things in this passage is Moses. Moses is doing all kinds of things. He's talking to all the people. He's writing down God's words. He's the one who erects an altar and these 12 pillars. He sends young men to sacrifice oxen. He then applies the sacrificial blood to the altar and to God's people. He's also, uh, if you notice, if you've read through this, the preceding chapters as well, Moses has been going up and down the mountain a bunch of times. It's like he's been doing laps up and down Mount Sinai, going back and forth from the Israelites to God and back again. 
Uh, in fact, it's actually, it's, I think it's one of the most challenging aspects. I'm quoting a commentator here. One of the most challenging aspects of following this whole narrative is keeping track of the ascents and descents of Moses. Right? Some say he made probably three or four trips and others say he made as many as 12 or 13 trips up and down a mountain. But while the exact number of trips isn't actually that important to work out, the simple fact that he does go back and forth points us to something that is quite important. As one commentator put it, the mere fact of his doing so, the mere act of Moses doing so in going up and down again draws us to the theological heart of the narrative, the need for a mediator. You see, this is a significant step forward in God's plan of redemption. Up until this point, God had been interacting with his chosen people in what you could call occasional appearances. We see with Abel and Cain, God addresses Abel and Cain directly on a, on a particular occasion. To Noah, to Abraham, even Jacob, uh, these, these, these men of the faith, God appears to them on occasion. But now, God's plan here in establishing this covenant, covenant with his people is to take up his dwelling place among his people. This is a huge step forward in the relationship that God is establishing with his people. I'll give more on that in just a moment, but in order to do this, in order to take up his dwelling place among his people, this holy God who is a consuming fire, whose presence would have destroyed God's people, needed to establish a mediatory system by which his people could draw near to him without perishing. And so that's what we see here. Kind of like an astronaut whose body is completely incompatible with outer space without the presence of a perfectly sealed spacesuit, God's people cannot draw near to him without accessing his presence through a mediator. Which brings me to the third thing that I want to point out here. God's holy, he's unapproachable by his people, so he raises up Moses as the mediator between him and the people in this covenant ceremony. And then, as this chiastic structure that I showed you just a moment ago, points out to us, uh, at the heart of this event, of this encounter with God, is the formalization of this covenant. And we see exactly how it is here that the mediator is instructed to establish the relationship between God and his people and that's through sacrificial blood. In verse four, Moses begins the formalization of the covenant by writing down the words that the people had just agreed to. They had declared their intent, so he reads the words again, and then he writes them down. And that indicates that this covenant is to be a lasting covenant. This is meant to be passed down from generation to generation. It is to be read regularly in its exactly preserved form. This is a lasting covenant. Then Moses builds an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars around it, which symbolize the real in-person relationship between God on the one hand, as represented by the altar, and the people of Israel as represented by the 12 stone pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And for the final step, so that these, this covenant form, formalization happens in three, three, three steps. The, the, the word of God is written down. Um, the, this visual symbolic representation is given. And then third, the final step, innocent animals are sacrificed and their blood is applied to the parties of the covenant. Moses uh, enlists the help of these young Israelite men, no doubt precursors to what would become the Levitical priesthood. Perhaps even these were men from the tribe of Levi, although we're not told exactly who they are. So Moses enlists their help to offer sacrifices and then Moses gathers up all of the blood from the sacrifices 
and he takes half of the blood and he sprinkles, he pours it against the altar. God's saying, I am entering this covenant with you. God receives the blood and then the other half of the blood is sprinkled over the people. And the significance of the blood here is at least twofold. One, blood at the heart of a covenant uh, signifies the unity of the two parties who are entering this covenant together. Uh, An animal, or in this case, many animals were sacrificed and their blood was combined in one place. And once applied in equal measures to both parties, it was a visual sacred sign of the unity between those two parties as they willingly received the blood of the covenant. In this case, the two parties are of course God and his people who are agreeing by the unity of the blood to the stipulations of the covenant. Two, this is a solemn reflection, I think, of the fact that this covenant was a covenant of life or death. Sharing in the blood of the covenant Um, sharing in the application of this blood at the establishment of the covenant was a solemn declaration. It was a public commitment to faithfulness to that covenant. It is saying, as Taylor mentioned, as you read it, as you receive the blood of the covenant, you say, let it be done to me as was done to these animals if I break faithfulness with these, the words of these covenant. So it is as binding a commitment as you get on penalty of death, I will be faithful to this covenant. So Moses establishes this covenant. At the heart of the covenant is this blood ceremony with the blood applied, the blood of the covenant applied to to God and to the people to unite them in this covenant. And then finally, the last thing I wanna point out here uh, in this text is that at the end of the ceremony, they sit down to share a meal with God. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says, then Moses and Aaron, so right after Moses applies the blood, verse eight, throws it on the people. It says, verse nine, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. We know from elsewhere in the scriptures that they don't behold God face to face here. This is a, what's called a theophany, an appearance of God in modified form so that his people are not destroyed by his presence. But twice Moses wants to emphasize that they are really in the presence of God. They saw the God of Israel, verse 10. They beheld God, verse 11, and they ate and drank. At the end of the covenant ceremony, they enjoy a meal together, which is, which is a significant act of fellowship. God shares a table with his people, and they share a table with him. Covenants at this time usually occurred like this, like I mentioned, between a superior and an inferior party. And this meal that they shared at the culmination of this covenant ceremony uh, was a high honor for the inferior party. As was the case with earthly covenants between kings and subjects, this covenant meal between God and his people was a clear sign of approval, that God is pleased with what he sees and that he is pleased to enjoy fellowship and communion with his people. This is understood to be the first. This, this meal is, in its, is itself a blessing and it's understood to be the first of the many blessings that are promised in the covenant. And in this covenant, the blessings are great. To circle back to what I mentioned a moment ago, it's important to note here that in establishing his covenant with his people, 
here on Sinai. God is making a huge step forward in his plan to restore his relationship with humanity and with all the earth. Up to this point, God has appeared in occasional fashion. Now he's taken the entire people, not just appearing to select people. He's taken the entire people to be his people and he has promised to dwell with them permanently and to be their God. And not only is God reestablishing fellowship with his people for fellowship's sake, but God is reestablishing his people in line with the original goal of the creation of the cosmos. God created all things, life itself, for the purpose of dwelling with his creatures. Life with God in the house of God is the purpose for which God created all things. Mankind was created to cultivate the earth into one big garden, one big kingdom, one big house in which God and man could dwell together in loving friendship. And so here we see God coming down again from heaven and taking up his dwelling place like he once was dwelling with his people in perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden. Here God is saying, I'm back and I'm here to stay. Remember back in Exodus 19 verse six, God had said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is nothing short of new creation language. God is going back to the beginning. He is fashioning his people, his people Israel, into co-regents with him, the, 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 the people that he created them to be, mediating the relationship between God and the rest of the world. And so this truly is a glorious covenant to, to his people, God's people who are shaking in their boots at the sight of his fiery presence, God extends the hand of friendship through his mediator, Moses, who applies to them the sacrificial blood Behold, verse eight, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made to you, with you in accordance with all these words. And as Moses and the elders sit around the table feasting in God's presence, they're likely dreaming of what God is getting ready to do in and through them. And so understandably, you would think that with such a glorious promise, such a glorious covenant, you would think that God's people would be all in. And they are, twice in this story. Right, at the open, technically three times, if you go back to the, the words from, Exodus, from chapter 19, but twice in this passage from Exodus 24, at the opening and at the formalization of the covenant, God's people commit their obedience. Verse three, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And verse seven, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. But here's the thing. In this moment, they are excited, right? Uh, unsurprisingly so. They had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They had seen God do miraculous works. He had parted the Red Sea to bring them out uh, through the Red Sea on dry land. He had closed it over their enemies in Egypt. He had led them through the wilderness with this pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He had fed them raining down bread from heaven. This was people who knew God and knew his power. They had seen God do amazing things for them. And so unsurprisingly, when God says, here's why I've done it, I brought you here to establish a covenant with you and make you my people, they say, absolutely, sign us up. We will do all that you have told us. But as we look back on this thousands of years later, we know that that's not exactly what happened. Right? It's almost chilling for us to read these words. As we look back on, 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 on God's people making this commitment to uphold the words of the law because we know that soon thereafter, it isn't even 40 days before they build and fashion another idol 
and worship it, calling it Yahweh, the great I am who delivered us from Egypt. And time and again, year after year, we see the Israelites who had this glorious covenant who grow further and further seemingly away from the faithfulness that they had once professed here at the, in this event at Sinai. Because you see, at the heart of God's people is what finds itself at the heart um, of all of humanity. We are hardwired not to cede authority to another, to have things to benefit ourselves rather than benefiting the Lord God. Ultimately, what we see uh, is that as, as the history of Israel unfolds, we see that the commitment that they made here was a commitment based not on worship of the holiness of God, but on self-interest. They had seen God's power. They had seen his deliverance. They were excited about the things that they got to enjoy as partakers of the covenant. They were excited about the blessings that came with it. And yet when things did not go in accordance with their, their plan and their idea for how their life ought to go, they turn away and they pursue their own way, giving themselves over to their own interests. They get distracted. And so the question that this passage is essentially answering, back at the beginning, the question that God's people had, had been asking as they come before the presence of God and know it is the presence of God in which we desire to dwell. The question that they then ask is who on earth can ascend the mount of the Lord? Who can dwell in God's presence? They've been brought this glorious covenant. God gives them a mediator and he gives them a covenant by which they can draw near to him and dwell with him and enjoy blessing in the land. But we see that they break faithfulness with that covenant. And yet somehow the covenant endures the unfaithfulness of God's people. Somehow this covenant that God had made, that they had made full commitment to, that, they had, that the, the animals had been slaughtered, the blood had been applied to them to show them this is, as they, they made the commitment as uh, let it be done to us like has been done to these animals if we break faithfulness to this covenant. God's people break the covenant and that doesn't happen to them. They don't get slaughtered. They don't get separated. Because repeatedly as they are unfaithful to the covenant, they turn to their other gods, they turn to their own sin. We see that once again, or excuse me, time and again, at the heart of this covenant ceremony, they come back to what was at the very heart of the covenant ceremony, the sacrifice of these oxen, the blood poured out for them in substitute for them. You see, at the heart of the covenant ceremony, there is one more thing that the blood does and it signifies for them. We have this picture that blood must be shed if God's people are, unfaithfulness, are unfaithful to the covenant. And in the picture of the ceremony itself, God presents a representative death for them so that by the shed blood of this animal, they might be found cleansed and acceptable and protected by God's consuming power. You see, in order for an unclean, sinful people to enter into covenant relationship with God, they must first be cleansed. And God provides them in this initial covenant ceremony a way to be cleansed. They are cleansed by the blood of a substitute, of a sacrificial animal. And this follows the pattern of what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus. Think about the obscure passage of Moses' circumcision event with his son Gershom. That's, that, that points forward to the Passover. We think about the Passover itself where God's people, the destroyer, the angel of death passes through the land and God's people are given a lamb, 
uh, giving instructions to slaughter a lamb, smear the blood on the doorpost so that they might be saved through no good of their own, but through the shed blood of another for their sake. And so God provided a way. He provided a way back then. He provided a way here. And then we see built into the very law was this fail safe that even when God's people are unfaithful, God provides this sacrificial system by which they can come again and draw near to him, into his presence. He kept providing for them. He kept inviting them. He kept wooing them. He kept drawing them week after week, year after year. They kept offering sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. And what we see is that this old covenant that God made with his people This covenant that they accepted at Sinai, this covenant that God graciously extended to them at Sinai was not the final covenant that God would make with his people. It was a significant step forward in preparation for the one who was to come. The prophets, um, just a couple hundred years after this event, the prophets started speaking of one who was to come, a deliverer who was to come, a Messiah who was to come, through whose suffering God's people could be made perfect. And I want to read the words of Hebrews chapter 10 for us. This is where we're presented with what Jesus did uh, in keeping with the blood of the covenant. Hebrews 10 says this. It says, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. The law could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus does away with the first in order to establish a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. brothers and sisters, as we encounter this story from Exodus chapter 24. And we see God reveal himself as the holy consuming fire in whose presence we were created to dwell, but in whose presence we have no right to be on account of our unworthiness. God graciously descends to his people and makes a way for them to draw near to him. And he did so in such a way that was to paint a picture for a final and perfect restoration that was to come because in this covenant, there is no, there is no secret that this is, uh, God did not say this is the end of the story. Right before chapter 24, in, verse, in chapter 23 of Exodus, God had told his people, behold, I will establish this covenant with you and I will be with you to lead you through the wilderness and into the promised land. They had wandering yet to do. They knew that there was a homeland 
there was a homeland that they were created for that they were not yet dwelling in. And the rest of the history of God's people, Israel, was a series of wanderings and wanderings towards that promised land, towards a promised place where once again, they could dwell with God, be his people in perfect relationship, in perfect peace, in perfect relationship with him and with each other. And the blood of the covenant of old always was meant to point forward to the blood of the covenant, the the new covenant that Christ came to institute. Pointing to the fact that today, when we consider what it takes to enter God's presence, what it takes to draw near to God, we also ask the question, who is it that can draw near to the Lord? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord and dwell in his presence without being destroyed? And we enter very much the same way as they did through the blood sacrifice of another, except not a bull or a goat, which cannot make perfect, but the blood of God himself who shed his blood for us and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the the means of taking hold of this promise that God has given us through Christ is simply this. In answer to the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The answer is anyone. Anyone who by faith receives Christ and the covering of his blood can enter into his presence. And his promise in the new covenant is similar to the promise in the old covenant. He told his people, I'm gonna make you into a holy nation and a priesthood. You're gonna be my treasured people. And over the course of history, we see God's gracious discipline with his people, pursuing them, molding them, making them into the people, readying them to receive the final promise of Christ, who says very much the same thing. We have yet to enter the homeland. We have yet to enter the promised land. And Christ's promise to us is to abide with us. His invitation to us is to follow him. As we hide ourselves under his blood, he makes us into the holy priesthood, the holy nation that he made us to be. He created us to be in his presence, sharing with him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this, your word. Thank you for pouring out your blood for us, Lord Jesus. To make atonement for our sins, to strengthen us in our weakness, to meet with us in faithfulness, even as we are unfaithful. Lord, I pray that you would captivate us with this picture that we're given in the book of Exodus that points forward to the only hope that we have of entering in your presence, of filling the hole that is in our hearts that can only be filled by you. Cause this picture of substitutionary atonement, of Moses acting as mediator for us, or for for your people of old, cause that picture to throw us forward forward to see Jesus for who he is, the final and fully sufficient sacrifice, the one who is mediating for us at your right hand in heaven, the one who who makes it such that we have no need for another earthly mediator like Moses because you are the eternal man who came to earth to make final 
and, and, and sufficient to make a final and sufficient plea for us before God's throne so that we who desire, who long for your presence uh, could come into your presence covered by his blood and be empowered to spread this message of hope that we have, that the fulfillment for which we search is not uh, a fanciful dream that doesn't exist, but this hope is a real life-giving hope that points us to Jesus. So point us to Jesus, Lord. Show us that he is enough and that he is all we need. We ask that you get the glory and meet us this morning in Christ's name. Amen.